Thanks, Jack. Good morning. I am Pastor Steve, and I am one of the lay pastors here at Parkside. How many of you were able to join us on Monday night for the Christmas Eve service? Raise your hands. Yeah, what a great time we had celebrating the birth of our Savior. We, we, we had a, an, an interesting reading of a Christmas story of, of a polar bear and her baby cub by Mick Coates. And several of the children joined up here on the stage as Grandpa Mick read that story. And then Jim Cook, one of our supported missionaries, was here and spoke on Isaiah chapter 9. During the month of December, we spent time looking at several of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Pastor Eddie began this the first Sunday in December with God Enters His Story, with a look at the prophecy that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 7, and specifically in verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Obviously, God has always been a part of this story, and it is, after all, his story. But what we looked at that day was the fact that God came as a man to be, spend time on this earth, and he chose a specific time in history to do so. And the reason was is for our benefit, because only God can redeem us. Pastor Chris then taught on God's gift to the world from Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That day we looked at four points. One is God is a counselor, not a companion. God is ruler, not as a politician. God is father, not as a boss. And finally, God is peacemaker, not as a general. And then two weeks ago, Justin taught, Behold your king from Zechariah 9, with verse 9 that states, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And during that teaching, Justin gave us a continual reminder that Jesus was a different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. And last week, Pastor Joss taught back to Bethlehem. And and to clarify once again, it was an analogy that Vice President Pence was here. He wasn't actually here on site. For back to Bethlehem, and he taught from Matthew chapter 2, where verse 5 states, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Josh focused our attention on Herod's hatred, Israel's indifference, and the wizard's worship of the Christ child, even when the Jewish religious leaders would not do so. And today we look at a New Testament passage that over the last several years has actually become one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And Jack and I were talking a little bit this morning and even again last Sunday, that this passage, one of the things that I like about this passage is that it does allow us to use our imagination a little bit. It doesn't give us all the details of the conversations, and so we do a little bit of supposing, if you will, what that conversation was like. But even looking at the scripture, we know that our reference point is not pointing toward the birth of Jesus, but rather this takes place immediately after his resurrection And as we've looked at several passages of Scripture in the month of December that that point to Jesus and the prophecies that tell of his coming and and what could be expected both of him about his birth and about him as a person, what we see, though, today is that 
this Jesus, this Messiah, this king, was not the king that they had expected. Let me pray for our time once again here this morning. God in heaven, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to open your word. I ask that you will direct our thoughts today, that you will open our minds, that you will open our ears, that you will open our eyes to the goodness of your scripture. And God, I ask that you will work in every one of us today, myself included, and that you will allow me to not get in the way of what your Holy Spirit has designed this morning. We thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our, our text again this morning shows of two disciples that are walking along the road. And as I was studying this, I was reminded of a movie from the 1980s in which a young boy moved from New Jersey with his mother to California. And he immediately begins a, uh, some trouble, gets into some trouble with the wrong group of kids. And he is beaten and bullied for quite a long time. And then he finds, the, this boy's name, by the way, is Daniel. And he then finds the help of an individual named Mr. Miyagi. And as he goes through, as we go through the story, what we see is, is that he had, he had asked Mr. Miyagi to be his karate instructor and his sensei because the way to get the bullies to stop bullying him for a period of time was to agree to participate in a karate competition that was going to take place in the coming months. And so Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach the boy on one condition, and that is that Daniel follow the instructions without questioning the methods. And so as Daniel shows up for his first day of karate training, Mr. Miyagi breaks out a bucket of soapy water, some sponges, and other material for Daniel to wash and wax his collection of four vehicles. And as Daniel begins to question the methods, Mr. Miyaki gently taps him on the forehead and reminds him of the agreement to not question the methods. It takes Daniel that entire day to wash this fleet of cars and wax them. And I forgot to say that Mr. Miyagi, when he was giving the instruction, he was specifically telling Daniel to apply the wax with the right hand, wax on, and to remove the wax with the left hand, wax off. And so as Daniel completes this the first day, he leaves exhausted with the instruction to return back again tomorrow. So he arrives the second day beginning thinking that his karate training will actually begin, and he finds Mr. Miyagi sitting on an elaborate system of decks in the backyard with two Japanese sanders that he quickly hands to Daniel and says, I need you to sand the floor, and he points to all the decks that basically cover the entire backyard. And he shows him the motion that he is to use, alternating with the right hand and with the left hand to make sure evenness around the deck. Daniel ends that day exhausted and once again leaves with the instruction to come back again, and this happens two more times. The third day, Daniel shows up and is instructed to paint the fence with painting the fence with his right hand for the big boards and with his left hands for the small boards. And he again leaves and comes back the fourth day. Only Daniel this time finds that Mr. Miyagi is not home, but there is a note taped to his front door, which gives him, gives him instructions to paint the entire house. And as he looks to his side, he sees several gallons of paint, drop cloths, and several paintbrushes for him to complete this task. 
And only this time the instructions are specific to not paint up and down, but rather alternate with the left and right hands, but this time with the motion going side to side. At, at the end of this day after completing this task, again, this is the fourth day, Daniel is frustrated, and especially when he sees Mr. Miyagi returning home with a fishing pole in, a fishing pole in one hand and a stringer of fish in the other. And Daniel begins to explain to him that maybe he would have liked to have gone fishing too, and he's completely frustrated that his expectations have not been met. We're going to come back to Daniel and Mr. Miyagi here in a little bit. But we see that this confusion and frustration that Daniel experienced might be similar to the emotions of these two disciples walking along the road. After all, they had expectations of Jesus, yet here they are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and this, this walk was about seven miles. While the journey could have been completed in as few as three hours, it likely took more like four to five while Scripture does not, Luke does not specifically record what they were talking about, they could have been, this is where we do some supposing, by the way. Maybe they were talking about Jesus' arrest in the garden where he had been praying with some of his disciples, but the chief priests, the officers of the temple, and other elders came and falsely accused him, and then how he was beaten and mocked while in their custody. Maybe they were talking about the trial where Jesus was presented to Pilate, then passed off to Herod, and then passed back to Pilate, where ultimately he was scourged and sentenced to death by crucifixion. Maybe they were sharing the account of how Joseph of Arimathea had come and removed Jesus' body from the cross with permission from the authorities, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and then placed him in the tomb, which was then sealed and guarded by Roman soldiers. They might even have been talking about their conversation with other disciples on the Sabbath day where they were gathered together and likely all of them were scared, confused, and frustrated about what would happen next and not sure exactly what would even happen to them. And even earlier on this day, as they began their journey to Emmaus, they had left Jerusalem where the city was likely abuzz, if you will, about the resurrection of Jesus, and again, the confusion of the disciples. And these two specifically were confused, and they were scared, and again, likely frustrated, because they had expectations of Jesus. But this Jesus, this Messiah, this king, was not the king that they had expected, or at least not at that specific moment. At some point, as they were walking and talking along the road, Jesus draws near to them, and he begins walking with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, in their defense, Luke, gives the, the, Luke implies that there was a divine action that prevented them from recognizing that they were actually walking with Jesus. And also keep in mind that their last recollection of Jesus was one of a person who was so badly beaten that he was beyond recognition and then tortured even further through the death of crucifixion. And also, Jesus at this point in time was in his resurrection body, so he would not have borne those visible marks. But for the, the, mark, the nail marks in his hands, the marks in his feet, and the, piercing, the, the hole in his side from the piercing of his spear, but they obviously did not see those marks. And as they were having this conversation, Luke records in verse 17, that Jesus then asked them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? 
And Luke records that this, this question actually stops them in their tracks. He, he says that they stood still looking sad, and one of the disciples answers Jesus with the question, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's likely that their, that their frustration turned to confusion. How could any visitor to Jerusalem not know what had happened You see, crucifixion was a public spectacle by design. It was one to severely punish the wrongdoer, but also it was designed to discourage anyone from rebelling against the Roman government. There was no social media to tweet 240 characters. There was no Facebook to do a live stream of the event either, but this was a big deal, and all of Jerusalem was likely aware and talking about what had happened. And then Jesus continues with one more simple question. As they talked about the things in Jerusalem, he said, what things? The disciples then respond in verses 19 through 24. And and one of the things I love about reading God's word is we have opportunities to think about this and to use our imaginations at times. And I, I can't help but see these two disciples who are confused, disappointed, and frustrated that the teacher whom they had been following for several months the one whom they had placed their faith in, the one whom they expected to be the Messiah, their long-awaited king, they were likely disappointed that their expectations had not been met, similar to Mr. Miyagi not meeting Daniel's expectations of his sensei. Jesus then provides a rebuke to them in verses 25 and 26, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then we read in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The the word interpreted used in this passage is where we derive our word hermeneutics. And and while that's a fun word to say, J. Grudem defines the word hermeneutics as the study of the correct methods of interpretation, especially interpretation of Scripture, the study of the correct methods of interpretation. And, and I think that Jesus here is beginning to reset the expectations of these two disciples as he begins to reveal the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the things that are mentioned about himself in, in the book, Who is Jesus?, Greg Gilbert writes the following about Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament. Actually, the Sermon on the Mount is primarily about Jesus making an audacious claim that he has the right to interpret Israel's Old Testament law to say what it means and why it's there in the first place. That's why Jesus says over and over again in that sermon, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, the emphasis is on I, And Jesus is making a radical claim that he is the nation of Israel's rightful legislator. Now, this Sermon on the Mount that that Gilbert refers to is actually recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it's possible that these two disciples actually heard Jesus teach that. And here again on the road, as Jesus interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, as he likely did in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, Here he is explaining to them what the Old Testament means and why it's there, and that's because it all points to him. Now, Luke does not record the specific texts of Scripture, 
or the prophecies that Jesus shared with these two, but I do think that verses 19 through 24 give us a look at how Jesus might have focused his response when he'd asked the questions. One thing is the disciples again responded in verse 20. First of all, that Jesus was delivered to be condemned to death and crucified. Then in verse 21, they had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. And third, in verses 22 through 24, that they, record, they recounted that Jesus' body was missing from the tomb and angels proclaimed that he was still alive. Now, while they did not use the words resurrected or resurrection, that's exactly what they were referring to. And so in our time remaining, based on the disciples' response to Jesus' question, we're going to look at three main points this morning. That Jesus was not the king that they were expecting. First of all, we're going to see that they expected their king to be crowned, not crucified. Secondly, that they expected from their king redemption with immediate, not delayed restoration. And third, they did not expect their king to be crucified, so they did not expect the resurrection. Again, our first point, and this is based off of the disciples' response from verses 19 through 20 in Luke chapter 24. They, did not, they expected their king to be crowned, not crucified. But you see, Jesus had to die. As Jesus commented about the necessity to suffer all these things, remember in his rebuke, he said, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's, it's likely that he began all the way back in Genesis with the account of the first sin from Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.15 states, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, as we see that sin entered the world, we also see the beginning of a struggle between Satan and man, between sin and righteousness and between life and death. And while God was speaking directly to the serpent, which was actually Satan, Adam and Eve were also there as well. And then in Genesis 3.21, we see, And God, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. It, it's possible that Jesus explained to the disciples how the physical death that followed sin should have been that of Adam and Eve because the wages of sin is death. But instead, God, in his mercy, killed animals in their place a, a sacrifice to atone for or to cover sin. And this was the beginning of the sacrificial system. It was a long-standing but temporary system until the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 by Jesus Christ himself. And this sacrifice was so important for us to understand that Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 for the need to understand Jesus' sacrificial death. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. You see, Paul records this, that I delivered this to you as of first importance, that the Christ must die. And I have to think that the disciples are beginning to understand that, as they ponder Jesus' questions in his rebuke, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, because God had to redeem us, Jesus had to die as a sacrifice, as a substitute for sin, all of mankind once and for all. And, and redemption and sacrifice go together. And as a quick aside, if you ever struggle with whether or not God is a loving God, think about this. 
we deserve death because of our skin, because of our sin, and God does not have to redeem us. Let that sink in. God does not have to redeem us, but he chose to do so. And because God chose to redeem us, we need a substitute to take the punishment for our sin. Because God is just, sin cannot go unpunished. And because God is gracious, he allowed his son Jesus to take our place, to take the punishment that we deserve. And Jesus died that sacrificial, substitutionary death so that we can live. Leviticus 19.11 states, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by life. And the last part of Hebrews 9.22 states, And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And again, I believe the disciples, as they're walking along the road, and as Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, I think they're beginning to understand that, yes, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things. Now, it's possible that as Jesus is talking with them, that he referred them to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah twenty-two fourteen states, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. With the memory of Jesus' beating and crucifixion, crucifixion fresh in their minds, it had only been three days, this passage would have hit home had Jesus shared this with them. Because, again, this was not what they expected from their king. They expected someone to reign, not to be crucified. And then Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You see, this was not the king that they had expected, but they are, again, I believe, beginning to realize that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. It's possible that Jesus continued with Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 7. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Again, this was not the king that they had expected, but it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Our second point this morning, they expected from their king redemption with immediate, not delayed, restoration. The, the two disciples explained to Jesus in, in verse 21 of Luke 24 that they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, and he was. And actually, not only Israel, but everyone, all families and all nations of the earth, just as God, as God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We, we've actually spent some time studying this in our Sunday school classes on Sunday morning in the previous weeks. 
In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we see God speaking to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, speaking to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, speaking to Jacob, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We actually see Paul bring this full circle, a closing of the Seinfeld loop, if you will, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. Now understand that Paul's letter to the church in Galatia was not yet written at the time that the disciples encountered Jesus on the road, but it's possible that Jesus could have explained how each of these promises, the promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, were actually pointing to himself. It's possible that Jesus explained to them from Genesis 3.15 that the offspring of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent is the same offspring who would bless all the families of the earth. And it is, in fact, Jesus about whom these scriptures are written. Again, because God chose to redeem us, Jesus had to die. And it is only through Jesus that we have redemption. We just read these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises to be a blessing to all nations and all families of the earth. And in essence, Jesus himself tells us that he is the only one who can redeem us. Think back to the time where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had just finished the Passover meal with the twelve and taken some of them along with him to the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And going in a little further, he takes three of the closest to him, and then he goes in a little further by himself. And we see that um, in Matthew twenty six thirty nine where Jesus is praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. God the Father's plan of redemption required God the Son to complete the work. You see, because God chose to redeem us, it was not possible possible for that cup to pass from Jesus because there there was no one else to take the cup. No one who was able to satisfy the wrath of God as a sinless, perfect, holy, and righteous sacrifice because only Jesus could redeem us. But what does it mean to redeem? The Greek word for redeem used in verse 21 means to ransom. And and this word is a derivative of another Greek word found in Mark 10.45, which states, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this word ransom in Mark 10.45 means something to loosen with, as in to set something free. And so redeeming, to ransom, if you, to ransom is to redeem something from captivity, from bondage, or from detention, 
by paying the demanded price. You see, in order for there to be redemption, there must be a cost, and someone must pay that price. But what was the price to be paid? Again, we see this in Hebrews 9.22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's likely that Jesus was telling these two disciples that this sacrificial system that was established long ago after the fall and how blood had to be shed to cover or to atone for sin, the sacrifice of animals was a temporary covering and not a permanent one. Hebrews 10, 3 through 4 tells us, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 14, And every priest stands daily at his sacrifice, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And this does tie into our first point, that Jesus did not come to be crowned, but to be crucified. But again, I believe Jesus is beginning to shape the minds and the thoughts and the hearts of these two disciples to help them to understand that it was, in fact, necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And just as it was promised in Genesis 3.15 that the woman's offspring would bruise the head of the serpent, and then again in Genesis 12.26 and 28, that all the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth will be blessed, we see that Jesus is the only one who can redeem us. However, the restoration that the disciples were looking for would not come at this time, and it's not yet come. But we have hope and faith that it will. Luke actually wrote a follow-up account of this gospel, and we know this as the Acts of the Apostles. And after his time, after the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days on earth visiting with other people and teaching again. And we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that Luke records, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You see, restoration would come. It was just not going to be when these two disciples had expected it. The disciples appear to be more focused on immediate gratification in the form of immediate restoration as they had told Jesus that, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. I, I have to think that Jesus either said or was thinking to them as he was conveying to them by interpreting all the scriptures, all things concerning himself, that he might have been saying, don't miss what has been done for you. You expected your king to be crowned, but the Messiah had to be crucified to pay the price that you could not pay. You see, restoration will come in due time, but before that could happen, I had to redeem you. To reiterate what Greg Gilbert said, that's why Jesus says over and over again in that sermon, again referring to the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, the emphasis is on I. Jesus is making a radical claim that he is the nation of Israel's rightful legislator. 
and back on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is the one to rightly and accurately interpret the scripture about what it says about him. And by beginning with Moses and all the prophets and interpreting to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Jesus is resetting the expectations of these two disciples to accurately reflect what was written in the law and the prophets about himself. And while restoration would be delayed and not immediate, again, let's not lose, fo- lose focus on the fact that only Jesus can redeem us. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. God is the standard of the law and man is the follower of the law. But no one can keep or follow the law except for Jesus. And actually Jesus tells us in that Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, to fulfill the law, Jesus had to keep the law. And to keep the law, Jesus had to live a sinless life. We say this sometimes frequently here, that Jesus came to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that we should have died. And his fulfilling of the law, he did so on our behalf. And not only did he fill the law, and his righteousness as a result of that is given to us, it's imputed to us. He also paid the price for our breaking of the law. You see, Jesus came to redeem us from the bondage of sin. And in order to do so, he had to die the death on the cross. And our third point this morning They did not expect their king to be crucified, so they did not expect the resurrection. Jesus actually spoke often about his death and resurrection, at least to those closest to him. We see in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. You see, Jesus had been teaching exactly what was going to happen, but yet they did not expect these things to take place as he had told them. And then again in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. And even though they had the Old Testament prophecies, and they had the teaching of Jesus that's recorded in the New Testament, And even yet after his death, they still did not expect his resurrection. Mark 16, 14 records, After he appeared with the eleven themselves as they were, afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had saw him after he had risen. And then similarly in Luke chapter 24, 
verses 10 and 11. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. And then finally, John chapter 20, verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Because they did not expect their king to die, they did not expect the resurrection. Now, whether or not these two disciples had heard Jesus teach this, or even if, they had, if the twelve heard had an understanding of what it meant, the point here is not lost, and that is that they did not expect the resurrection. Because they did not expect Jesus to die, they did not expect him to rise from the grave. So as we look back, I'm going to jump forward in the, in the passage of Scripture here. Luke 24, verses 28 through 30. This is where this walk comes to an end. And Luke records, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, being Jesus, acted as if he were going further, but they strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? And while he opened to us the scriptures. Think of that, what that must have been like. I don't know if you've ever listened to an audio book or not. I do that occasionally. And sometimes if it's a nonfiction book, I like to get a version where it's actually read by the author. And I recently did that. And the reason I like that is because you get to hear the emotion and the emphasis directly from the person who wrote the book. And it's much, so, much more so than what I could interject on my own. And, and I think that along the road to Emmaus, this is exactly what these disciples had encountered. They were receiving the firsthand interpretation from the one who was both the author and the subject of the scripture. And it changed them. And their hearts burned within them. And while he talked to them on the road, while he opened to them the scripture... So let's fast forward now from Emmaus back to this movie in the 1980s where Daniel confronts Mr. Miyagi after spending four days of what he considers to be hard labor and basically free labor to clean up some things around his house when he had expected to receive karate training. And so Mr. Miyagi sees the confusion, the frustration, and the disappointment in Daniel's face, and he asks Daniel to demonstrate for him the wax-on motion. And after a few slight corrections, Mr. Miyagi then throws a punch at Daniel, which Daniel successfully deflects with that motion. And Mr. Miyagi then throws another punch, which again, Daniel successfully deflects. And this continues on as Mr. Miyagi is tweaking and fine-tuning every one of the motions from wax on, wax off, sand the floor, paint the fence, and paint the house. And then we see at the closing of this scene where Mr. Miyagi then throws a series, a series of punches and kicks at Daniel, which he not only successfully but also decisively deflects. 
And as Daniel is standing there, he's trying to figure out what just happened. The look on his face is like someone who just realized that he has previously unrecognized power or knowledge. And then as Mr. Miyagi slowly bows to Daniel and Daniel returns the bow, he tells the boy to go home and return the next day. And this time, as on the fourth day, as Daniel leaves, unlike the previous three days, he now understands a little bit better that his initial expectations of this training were off base. He now understands that what he had been instructed on the previous three days were actually the building blocks for his karate training and what he needed to be able to successfully defend himself in the upcoming karate match. And while Daniel's response is dramatic, I believe that it pales in comparison to that of these disciples on the road to Emmaus. See, Luke records that their hearts burned within them as Jesus spoke to them and opened up the scriptures because he was not only telling them what he had in fact authored, but he was actually pointing them in the right direction, and that was that Jesus, this Messiah, this King, was in fact the one who was fulfilling the prophecies that had been written. And see, they had received an accurate interpretation, and therefore they now had an accurate understanding of their Messiah, of their King. And their response was that they could not sit idle and do nothing about that. You see, Luke records that they immediately got up and went back to Jerusalem. And again, this was a a journey of about seven miles, and Luke had already recorded that it was late in the day and likely getting dark, and they were tired. And going back to Jerusalem on the road was a dangerous task for them to do, yet they knew that they could do nothing else but to get up and go back and share what had just happened to them, what they just had experienced. So what about you? What are your expectations of Jesus? Maybe you have already placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But do you have expectations that are based on yourself or based on others? Or do you have expectations of Jesus based on what the Bible says? Maybe you walked in this morning with no expectations because because maybe you don't believe in God. Maybe you have an expectation that God is going to look over your sin. Or maybe that God just doesn't get it. Because God doesn't know what I'm going through. But you know what? He does know. And while God will not excuse your circumstances and excuse your actions, he does want to help you through them. He wants you more than anything else to understand that his love is so great that he chose to redeem you. And because he chose to redeem you, he had to die for you. Romans 10.13 tells us that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe your expectations of Jesus are that your good deeds will earn you grace 
But Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that that's not the case because he records that you have been saved by faith. You have been saved through, by grace. You have been saved through faith and that it is nothing that you can do so that you can't brag about it, so that you can't take credit for it, so that you don't think that you redeemed yourself is in essence what Paul is saying. Maybe you have an expectation that because you're not as bad as somebody else, I'm not as bad as the sinner sitting next to me. You choose your right or left, which, one, which way you want to look. But maybe it's someone else who's not even here. Maybe, maybe you have expectations of Jesus that are unfounded because maybe you've been to church before and maybe you've been hurt by someone in the church. Maybe it was just a member. Maybe it was a member of the choir or the praise team or, God forbid, maybe a pastor. But don't let your experiences set your expectations of Jesus Christ. Let Scripture do that. And the reason we can't think that we're, be- we're, we're not as bad as the next person, so we're okay, because Romans tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6.23, once again, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And whether you know it or not, you've just heard the gospel this morning. The gospel is the story or the account of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And as we looked at these responses from these two disciples to Jesus' questions, what things, they basically talked about that. We didn't expect him to be crucified. We expected him to redeem us, but we expected immediate restoration, not delayed restoration. And because we didn't expect him to die, we didn't expect him to rise, to rise from the dead. But that is, in essence, the good news. So as we move into our time of communion this morning, take a few moments before we do that. Think about your expectations. Are they, are they founded based on what you want them to be? Or are they founded on the basis of what was recorded in the Old Testament by Moses and by the prophets and in the Psalms and in the New Testament that's recorded by people who heard firsthand Jesus' teachings? We, we practice open communion here at Parkside, so anyone who professes their faith in Jesus Christ is welcome to partake of communion with us. We have our communion tables at the front and in the back on the main floor as well as in the back in the auditorium. We also have prayer team members that will be stationed at each of these tables or at least in between a couple of them. If you have questions today, come talk to us. We'd love to have the opportunity to explain more. And you know what? If we don't have time to answer all your questions today, we'll spend more time with you later in the week to do that, to answer the questions that you may have. Maybe you have a specific request that you want us to pray for. Any one of our prayer team members will be happy to do that. And for our regular members and our, our members and our regular attenders, the brown boxes are on the offering, on the communion tables to continue our worship and time and tithes and offerings, and you can also submit your offerings to the hub as well. Let me close this in prayer. God in heaven, we love you. And as we think about this encounter these two people had with Jesus on their way to Emmaus. Father, I pray that the liberty taken this morning is not offensive to you, but is glorifying to you. 
And I pray that as their hearts burned, as they heard Jesus open the scriptures to them, God, I pray that our hearts will burn in a similar way as we read your word, as we study your word, as we look to apply it to our lives. We thank you for that. And God, I pray for those here today who, who will be strengthened by this and those here today who may not understand what we've talked about. But God, I pray that you will make it clear to them of their need for a Savior, the one who came to fulfill the promises that were spoken of, to, those, to the one who came to redeem us, because you chose to redeem us, your son had to die. And Father, I pray that you will help us to remember that. I do thank you for these things and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.